0: We are in 1 Samuel chapter 28, and last time we covered verses 1 through uh, 19, and I'm going to just recap that. Uh, So, what happened in verses 1 through 19 is, is the Philistines are about to attack the nation of Israel, Saul, the king, goes to a medium a a, a woman who practices necromancy where she consults the dead to find out the future. And what happens is, during this seance or this event, God actually intercedes and doesn't just bring back some demon, bring up some demon to to, uh, uh, communicate something, actually physically brings up Samuel. Brings up Samuel because the woman sees Samuel and cries out, the woman, who the witch, sees Samuel and cries out. And uh, it's a very unusual chapter. Somebody was saying, "Why didn't I talk more about why did God do it this way?" I have no idea why God brought back Samuel to speak this way. This is an unusual chapter in Scripture. I don't know another chapter like it in Scripture. So, so in in the five thousand year history that the Bible seems to cover, if we exclude the actual Genesis events, but the 5,000 years of uh, of history there. This is this is a, a singular event in the Bible that it covers. And we know that it's Samuel that actually came up from the dead, and we know that specifically because it says it in chapters 28, verse 12, 14, 15, 16, and 20. So there's five references specifically say it was Samuel, not that it was someone... Making, making, uh, making themselves look like Samuel, not that it was a demon. It said specifically it was Samuel that was doing this. So the writer clues us right in that Samuel did come back from the dead. And we talked about the classic Jewish perspective, the classic Jewish perspective being that <clears throat> there is a chasm between those who are in the bosom of Abraham, meaning the righteous ones, and the ones that are not. And this is somewhere under the earth. And that uh, Jesus spoke of this same thing in the Gospel of, of Luke. We learn about that. Okay, so let's let's just pick up a little bit more on, on some of these thoughts uh, as we see, and, and I as we see in uh, verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So, um, so, he says that you and your sons will be with me tomorrow. So, this is Samuel speaking. Samuel is in the bosom of Abraham. He's in a place of peace. He didn't want to come back. He's very much in a place of peace. And he says, tomorrow, you and your sons, three of Saul's sons... The three that were in the army died along with him the next day in battle. And he says, Tomorrow you will be with me. Which again speaks of the fact that even though Saul was in a state of disobedience to God, and God had even departed from him, still God he he knew God, and he was going to end up in that righteous side in the bosom of Abraham because Saul said, because Samuel said, You will be with me. But what's interesting is the fact that that here is a man who is very much alive, meaning Samuel, the prophet, is very much alive. He comes back from this place of the dead. He comes back and he's speaking. And now we had seen, up in verse 3 of chapter 28, it says, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him, and buried him in Ramah, his own city. So you see, that the Scriptures doesn't let us think that, oh well... Maybe this is talking about an event that happened earlier before Samuel's death. You see what I mean? It establishes right here in the same chapter, I want you to know, Samuel is dead. He has been buried. Okay, that is a fact that has occurred. Now, after his death, his burial, it says that he was in a place of peace and they called him back. And Samuel's just like, why are you calling me back here? I don't want to be here. You know, why are you calling me back from this state of rest? He was in a place of restfulness. And then we had seen in, in Luke, Jesus spoke of this, this same sort of thing, this same type of event, and we had looked this last time. So this is in, in uh, Luke chapter 16. If you look in Luke chapter 16, Jesus spoke of the same sort of thing. So Luke chapter 16, reading from verse, uh, verse 19. Luke 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. So he says here, in verse 19, there was a rich man. He doesn't say, if there were a rich man, if there had been a rich man, or suppose there were a rich man. He says, now there was a rich man. This is what Jesus said. Very specifically, we must take his words. Verse 20. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away in Lazarus' bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and, and that none may cross over from there to us. So you see, they're having a conversation. This is, again, the classic Jewish view. So it's the right view. Jesus underscored it. Jesus even spoke of this: that under the earth, prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it says after his resurrection, he took these captives captivity. He took those in captivity captive. He brought them with him to heaven. The ones who were in Abraham's bosom, but prior to this, he's he's here in, in in this event. You see this chasm that's separating them. Jesus spoke of this as if it's true, as if it's right. This is the way it was spoken of. But what you see again is you see that people are living after they die. What a unique concept. Look in in, uh, Matthew chapter 22. Look again what Jesus talks about this. Life after death. You say, well, where's the science in that? It's not in any science books. It's in the Bible. Jesus spoke about this. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. (coughs) Let's start reading from verse 23. Matthew 22, verse 23. On that same day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him. Asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, and his brother next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, And the first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. And so also the second and the third down to the seventh. The last one of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had been married to her. So you see that they said, it, it says in verse 23 that there were some Sadducees and these Sadducees said there is no resurrection. So immediately... The the writer Matthew qualifies this for us. He says, look at their their worldview, their perspective. They believe that there is no resurrection. And they came to question the teacher. He said, and and when they questioned him, they quote from the Law of Moses, that if a man dies and he has no children, then the brother has to come in and marry this wife, even if he already had one of his own wives, he had to marry this wife and raise up offspring for her raise up offspring, that offspring would be in the name of his brother, not his own name, and he had to give a portion of his inheritance to that child in his brother's name. That is, that is what, what the law had said to do. And so, then, then it says, it says uh, in verse 25, now there were seven brothers with us. So in other words, the Sadducees were saying, there were seven brothers with us, and there was this woman... And the, the husband died, and then the next brother got her. He died the next brother, Think about, you know, brother number four or five, and sees this coming. Every one of them is dying. And then brother number seven, it's like, you know, not me. But anyway, you know, he had to marry her. And then the, that brother dies. And then finally the woman dies. And whose is she going to be in the resurrection? So here's what Jesus replies to this. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken in not, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So, he said that, that in the resurrection there is no marriage, they are like angels in heaven. So there won't be marriage in heaven, he says, according to this. And because of this, I've had a discussion with Shireen. She's going to be in this mansion that's up on this very big hill, probably right in Jesus' neighborhood. She's going to have a huge mansion because of all the good works that she does. And, and I've already made an agreement with her that she's going to let me stay in her mansion with her. I said, even the doghouse in your mansion will be better than probably where I will have. So we, we have this agreement between us because in marriage, it, the marriage is for this earth. We're bound on this earth. But then Jesus talks about the resurrection. He doesn't let a good teachable moment go by. He says in verse 31, um, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. I mean, this is an extremely profound thought. Because... This was a verse that is constantly quoted by Jews even today, where he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the other name of Jacob. This is a verse that's constantly quoted by them in many of their liturgical prayers, many times. And so Jesus takes this very verse and he says, you've said this so many times. Moses wrote this. You've seen it so many times. Now... What you see is, God is not God of the dead, but of the living. So he doesn't agree with the Sadducees that there is no resurrection. He categorically says that these people are alive. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. That's why God says, I am their God, because God is not God of the dead. Had they been dead, he would not be their God. God is not God of the dead, but of the living. Do you see the life after death? Now look in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the chapter which just nails down the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just makes it very, very clear. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First, this first Corinthians chapter 15, reading from verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He says, this is the most important thing that I'm telling you. You know, like when the professor says, listen up, this will be on the test. Everybody's ready to write. He says, this is the most important thing that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the most important thing. In fact, He says up in verse in verse 1 of chapter 15, Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So in other words, you can believe in vain. There is vanity in belief. In other words, you can believe in vain so that it's all in vain if you don't believe this. So you say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the resurrection. He says, "Mm -mm." you're believing in vain then. You're believing in vain. And now look what he says in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He would raise Christ from the dead whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So, it says that not only has Christ been raised, but there will be a physical resurrection of all the dead. There will be a physical resurrection of all the dead. But as far as Jesus being alive, He's very much alive. He's physically alive. Individuals like you and me and people today, when they perish... The physical body is gone. That will one day be resurrected from the dead. You say, well, what if they were cremated? God will put the atoms together into molecules just like He did it the first time. That is not a barrier for Him. It's a barrier for us, not for Him. In fact, the atoms all still exist. Did you know that? They're not going anywhere. They're still, they're still here. And, and uh, God's able to deal with that. But as far as life after death, the life after death is clear. So even when a loved one dies, when they're in Christ, they're in a very nice place. They're still living. You say, is this real? Very much real. Remember, what happened is this man, Lazarus, and the rich man had not been resurrected from the dead. They were in the bosom of Abraham. And they were having a discussion. You know, this rich guy was negotiating with Abraham. There was a negotiation going on. You know, a rich Jewish guy negotiates. You know, and, and Abraham says, sorry, I can't cross this chasm. You know, can't do it. The negotiation's over. But you see a conversation's going on. Samuel comes back. He says, what are you bothering me for? I don't want to come back. I told my kids, one day you may bury me in the ground, but remember, I'm not there. I'm very much alive. There is life after death. And this is the blessed hope that we have as believers. It is such a wonderful thing as believers to know that when a loved one in Christ has perished, they are very much alive. Their physical body is gone, but they are very much alive. You have to discount, and he says, how can you say if there is no, res, there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. Your faith is in vain. There is life after death in God. There is life after death. Okay, let's turn back to First Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel... This whole portion <clears throat> that we've covered so far in verse <clears throat> chapter 28 has to do with an occult practice. And we looked at a number of verses last time, and if you, if you missed it, it's all up on the web now. But we looked at a number of verses where God spoke categorically against this in the Old Testament. Not only were you not supposed to lead in an occult practice, you were not supposed to partake in an occult practice or go to somebody who, who went into it. Now you say, well, is the occult... You know, still happening today. It is very much happening. In fact, there are entire divisions of law enforcement that are set aside for dealing with people who are, de- who are in the occult. Because a lot of illegal activity comes uh, part and parcel with that as well. But let me, let me uh, give you a, a few examples of some things. You know, I have, I have walked for 30 years, over 30 years with God. I have never cried out in fear because of my relationship with God. But you see in chapter 28 that even the witch who's participating in this in this occult practice it says that in verse 12 when the woman saw Samuel she cried out with a loud voice and she spoke uh, she cried out with a loud voice and the woman spoke to Saul saying why have you deceived me for you are Saul. So you see the woman is crying out there is fear. There is fear in those who practice the occult. It is not a thing of comfort. It is not a place of comfort. It is a place of fear. It is a place of anxiety. Let me give you a few examples. I was once in an airplane uh, uh, traveling to, um, to Scotland. And sitting next to me was a woman who turned out to be a professional golfer. And she was from Scotland and she was playing on the U.S. tour. She was on her way home. And I started to speak to her about the Lord, and she said, you know, my, my sister is into spiritual things, and she started to describe it to me. I said, oh, that's the occult. She says, yeah, that's what it is. Uh, I said, let, let me make some predictions about your sister. I'll bet that she has a terrible time sleeping at night. She becomes really fearful. And this woman golfer's eyes just you know, opened wide. I said, and and, uh, she'll have a terrible time being freed from that if she continues in the occult. And, you know, then she started to open up. She says, yeah, this is exactly what it is. Those who are in the occult have a terrible time uh, sleeping at night. It is a very fearful thing. Um, You know, one day I got a, I used to go door-to-door ministry a lot, and um, I would leave my phone number this is when I was in graduate school, I'd leave my phone number for people all over, knocking on doors, and just leave them with my phone number if they ever wanted to talk about Jesus. And one day we got a call on the phone, and it was a woman speaking in a foreign voice, foreign language, and I figured, oh, it must be for Shireen. So, you know, she's going on and on in some foreign language, so I hand the phone to Shireen. And then the woman, which Shireen tells me, was speaking very clear English, and the woman was saying... Your husband is my boyfriend, and I want him back. And so, Shireen just hung up the phone, and she described this to me, and so we just went into prayer, because what had happened was, right in front of our apartment, and we used to use our apartment a lot for ministry, was a dead cat. Now, cats die sometimes. You don't think much of it. Cats die, you know, this dead cat laid right out in front of our our door there. Well, right in front of the ministry door, where, where uh, uh, the church has this, had this ministry house right by campus and I used to go there and pray a lot and we used it for the center of ministry, guess what I found in front of the front door of the ministry? A dead cat. You say, well, you know, this is, just happened to be on the same day a dead cat in front of my door and in front of the ministry door that just happened to drop dead at that instant. Now, cats drop dead all the time but the chances of this are probably fairly rare. <clears throat> So I knew <clears throat> exactly what was going on, because in occult practices, very often there's animal sacrifice. And they'll sacrifice animals, and they'll come with omens and curses. Let me show you, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, I don't fear these things in the sense that if, if you look in Numbers chapter 23, this beautiful text in Numbers, which is really something to, to grab onto and remember this. Numbers chapter 23, verse 23, Numbers 23:23. There is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. So God protects His people. I mean, people can make omens and divinations against me. It says that they, they won't alight. You know, it, and it says in Proverbs, a curse, a, a, a curse undeserved will not alight. It will not take root. And so, it, and, and then what happened was, that night or the next night, I just had a lot of trouble sleeping. I, I felt I have to pray, I have to pray. And so I went out into the, so we just a, a, a one bedroom apartment, and we had our, our daughter in there with us in, the, in that bedroom. And I went out into the, the other room, which had everything else. It was the living room, the dining room, and the kitchen. And I started praying. It was right on the ground for, floor on the end of a building, and I just felt this really, real oppression, and I just started singing about the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus just started singing about the blood. And we used to keep our windows open at night because just for fresh air. And all of a sudden, there was this blood-curdling scream from this woman right outside the window. I mean, just... And I heard her running down the sidewalk. And I wasn't about to go out there. I just called the campus police. I heard a woman scream in 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 the park right behind our apartment. And they went and they looked. They didn't see anybody. But I knew what had happened. I had been singing about the blood of Jesus and there was this confrontation where the, there were these occult practices and they took off. I had other experiences with it. In fact, uh, several years ago, I think it was about six years ago, even in this class, there was a young lady who was attending this class who uh, um, had attended this class and started getting in- involved in occult practices. And and uh, I had warned her about it. I spoke with her mother about it. And she had gotten a boyfriend who was much more into the occult practices than she was, and so I tried to get to know this guy, they came over for lunch, and they're sitting at our table at home, and he was a little shaken up, and I said, tell me what's shaking you up, he says, well, before I met this lady, this young lady, I had a former girlfriend, and she committed suicide, I said, well, tell me what happened, he says, well, you know, I told her, I I, I told her I was going to, you know, meet her at her home, and I didn't show up for about two hours after I was supposed to show up and she was so frustrated with me she hung herself she drew a pentagram on the ground which is a typical occult sign and she hung herself i said are you involved in the occult he says i have been you will never see a peaceful person who has been involved who is is involved in the occult it never brings peace never brings peace so the next week i said you know I'd really love to pray with you. He said, I'm not ready for prayer. The next week, he and this young lady came back to the class. And, and after the class, I said, you, you know, let me pray for the two of you. So I brought them back into another room. And I just brought a, a, a couple other people with me to pray for them. And uh, as I, I prayed for the young lady, and I told her, I said, you have to stay free of these people. I said, it's fine to love them, but, but uh, it is not your job to go there anymore. And I started to pray for her, for her deliverance from this. And this guy, who I was going to pray for next, was getting really fidgety. And he stood up and he said, You don't like the people that we're with. I said, It's, it's not a matter of like or dislike. It's a matter that I'm going to pray for you. He says, You're not going to pray for me. And he went storming out. And uh, then later, when I was just coming out of the building, we were meeting across the street there, he had gone to the car, he had gotten a black trench coat, turned up the thing, and he was smoking profusely on this cigarette, and just, you know, he just closed right up. Wouldn't, would, Wasn't open to prayer. This is typical of people involved in occult practices. We are to stay free from that. And let me tell you, you know, this creeps up on people. Really, really uh, uh, in, in uh, innocent appearing ways, but it can be quite insidious. You know, it often starts just playing around with Ouija boards. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it's just a primer. It's just a start. And if you've dealt with these things, what you need to do is you want to take the Lord's Supper afterward. You ask God to forgive you for that and to be free of it. And it goes into tarot cards, card, uh, palm reading. It then goes into seances. This is this necromancy, this calling upon the dead to speak something concerning life. And this is calling up demonic spirits. And if you think that this doesn't happen, that this is not real, that this is just a bunch of people's imagination, you can find it in this city, and it is very strong. And you can meet people involved in it in this city. It then extends into animal sacrifice and even human sacrifices. I've read the police reports where women will intentionally get pregnant and carry babies to term deliver the babies, and then offer up the babies as part of the occult practices. It happens in this city. These things happen. It happens with curses and omens, playing, placing curses and omens upon people. This sort of thing is really insidious, and it creeps up on the unsuspecting, just playing around with simple little things, thinking it's, it, it, it's uh, uh, really not that important. And what happens is, you will begin individuals who start practicing and dabbling in this have a hard time sleeping because there are things that do not leave them alone. There is demonic activity and if you think that there is not demonic activity you have not read the scriptures. Now if you read the New Testament if you read in the book in, in, in the Gospels and you see the interaction of Jesus Jesus was dealing with demonic spirits all the time. It was a very regular occurrence where he was dealing with demonic spirits. Once Jesus died and rose from the dead the number of occurrences where the church is interacting with demonic spirits goes way down. It is clear in the book of Acts, but the book of Acts spans a period of about 25 years. And there's just a few interactions with demonic spirits over that 25-year period where you see Paul having to to deal with some of these things. But what happened is there was a a clear demarcation from the end of the Gospels, from the time Jesus rose from the dead, till the time when... uh, uh, Till the time when when the, when the church started, things became a lot more "quote unquote" normal in a sense in the amount of demonic activity confrontation. Let me see if I could find this verse. There's a verse in uh, in 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 Revelations twelve Revelation twelve twelve which says. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So this is the verse that characterizes what happened. When Jesus was born, the devil was thrown down. There was a huge amount of demonic activity during the life of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, every third page, he's confronting demons. You don't see this pattern in the book of Acts anymore. So that's why, you know, although there is demonic activity, we don't see it all the time. And so for those who are dealing with it all the time, it's a, it, that's unusual. You don't see this practice all the time. I've dealt with that demonic activity at certain times. Even even in this city once, I was sitting in, in Randalls, just up the road here. And I was sitting in there that, you know, they have these little tables where you can uh, uh, get a coffee and sit. And I was... I was sitting there reading my Bible and I heard one guy come in and he was just cursing, just cursing loudly. You know, walking in just cursing, saying, I want bluebell ice cream. and Just curs- And, you know, I have, I've dealt with guys like this in the prisons especially and I knew that this guy had a demon just the way he was speaking. And he was an older man. I mean, he was probably, probably uh, uh, in his mid-50s. I'm thinking, well, go get bluebell ice cream. And, Unfortunately, he just kept on walking. And, I, went, and, and uh, I never see anybody in the Scriptures chasing down someone with a demon to deliver them. When they're confronted, they deal with it. And then, lo and behold, he got his bluebell ice cream. I doubt if he even paid for it. And he was eating it, eating the bluebell ice cream, and walking back toward the area where I was sitting. And I go, oh no, I may have to deal with this. And I, I really don't like to. It just gets so messy. And, and uh, so I'm reading my Bible. And, you know, I come from a Jewish background. But it doesn't say Jew across my head. So he's walking up to me. And he gets, oh, about 20 yards. And he looks over at me and he says, Wow, well, if it isn't one of the children of the Hebrews. I'm thinking, yes, the, the demons are revealing things to him. And he starts walking closer. I go, okay. Just, I'm going to have to deal with them now I was about to just start proclaiming in the name of Jesus casting him out and I raised my head and I looked right at him and he goes uh oh G U L P and he turns around and he just goes boom right back out you know he wanted nothing to do with me I really didn't want to have to deal with this but I have seen it I've dealt with it in the prisons demonic activity is real it happens In some countries it's more prevalent than it is in this country, in some environments. But it is clear in Scripture, you cannot get away from it. You say, How scientific how can a scientist be talking about this? Because if I don't talk about it, worry. Because it's here in the Bible. It is clear. This is what is in the Bible. Don't deal with occult practices. And remember, it's insidious. It comes in a harmless fraction, fashion. People say, Let me, let's go to this palm reader. It's really a lot of fun. Let's just see what they say. Don't even go. Have nothing to do with it, the Bible says. And if you've dealt with it, you know, a lot of this is done in innocence. You don't know this. Just ask God to forgive you and say, Lord, I just any traces of that, just clear it out of my life. And He is faithful to do that. He is faithful. But remember, those who practice this move deeper and deeper and deeper. And this is what Saul himself went into. He subjected himself to this. Because God had stopped speaking to him in any normal way because of his evil, sinful practices. Because it says in in, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, it says that, that, uh, verse 6, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. God didn't speak to him in dreams or by Urim, which was that that uh, uh, that Ephod, that breastplate that would answer yes no questions by this light pattern that had, that Moses had made as part of the temple. That that the priest only the priest had access to that, and that was no longer there because remember Saul had killed off all the priests and the last remaining one ran and went to be with David, and then God didn't speak to him with prophets because Nathan and Gad went to be with David because. Saul was in the mood for killing. And it's interesting, when he, when he comes back to Samuel, Samuel says to him, it says in verse 15 of, of 1 Samuel 28, Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? So this was a disruption to him. And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me, and no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I called you. Well, he didn't mention Urim. He didn't mention it because he wanted nothing to do with telling Samuel about how he had killed all the prophets because Samuel himself was one of the prophets. So he didn't say, well, he happens not to be speaking to me by Urim because I don't have it anymore. It's not with me. So he just says, not by dreams or by prophets. That's why I've called you back. So what he did is he closed himself off from communicating with God. And he started seeking out other methodology. Now God interceded and spoke to him through Samuel. Bringing back this prophet to speak with him. God interceded, although he had gone to this witch. Don't seek these these things out. Don't seek out those who would be involved in witchcraft. It is a real thing. It is a serious thing. When you meet people that have been or are deeply involved in this, you will see a deep depression and fear in their lives. Anger, fear, anxiety. That is what it brings. This is true. We see this. And if you think it's not true, you can even, even the Houston Police Department has a section that deals with the occult. Those involved in the occult. Because of the evil practices that go along with it. And these guys could tell you all sorts of stories. Alright, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the Word of God. For the truth of it. And Father, I pray for these young people that that they would be free of the occult and stay free of these practices. Father, that, that if those, anyone here has been involved in that, that you would bring them to a point of repentance and asking forgiveness of God. And Lord, I know that you are faithful. You are faithful to deliver. You are faithful to protect. Father, I thank you because your word shows us these things, speaks of them, and tells us to be free of them. And Father, I pray for these young people, their spiritual protection. Cover them by the blood of Jesus, I pray. In the name of Jesus, Amen.